Welcome to another episode of the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we're looking at what I would call the first hot battle of the Mexican-American War in Alta California. And to be honest, it's barely that. There weren't many casualties, there were a few gunshots fired. Nonetheless, it is an important battle to understand the many dynamics at work in Alta California during this period of time. Before we get started, just a quick reminder uh, to support us on Patreon by making a financial contribution or by giving us a rating and review. Both of those go a long way to help the sustainability of this podcast. Okay then, let's get started. A few years ago, I watched a movie called Battle L.A., one critic that I read described it as a as War of the Worlds meets The Hurt Locker. It was an interesting concept film. It's shot from the soldier's point of view, uh, which is both kind of disorienting and realistic, uh, to describe uh, the experience from the moment of the people experiencing it. The movie begins with meteors crashing to Earth, which of course turn out to be an alien invading force, first wave. The battle sequences are intense and engaging, but ultimately repetitive, and I remember very little of the plot. However, the part that stuck with me most was a sense of being isolated and not really knowing what was going on. Today, we are so aware of the minutia of things going on around the world uh, by checking our phones and Twitter and all the different news apps that we have. Uh, but for the native people, and also uh, Californios, uh, living in Alta California, uh, they didn't really have a sense of what was going on. News didn't travel fast. In particular, for the native people living in California, when those initial ships arrived in the 18th century, uh, those ships functioned as meteors. Uh, but the death that they brought is unlike the death... Uh, from the Battle of L.A. Um, it's more of a slow, creeping death, uh, kind of invisible death. Now, before information technology, people were often alone. Uh, things were much more localized. Uh, you would hear about something maybe in bits and pieces. I mean, if you think about global wars, like the Seven Years' War, uh, from the American perspective, it's taking place all over the all over the world, um, but what is clear to the people in the colonies is uh, what the war looks like on the frontier between the French, the natives, and the uh, British colonies. Now, the siege of L.A., which was what we're going to talk about today, is admittedly a confusing title. Uh, it's an important part of the history of the Mexican-American War in Alta California. Um, but before we get there, let's remind ourselves about the larger conflict uh, of the Mexican-American War and how it started. In April of 1846, Mexican soldiers attacked uh, a group of American soldiers being led by Zachary Taylor. Uh, this attack took place in a disputed area, um, and 12 people were killed, uh, which ultimately started a war uh, that would lead to an all-out conflict uh, between these two bordering nations. Uh, the Mexican military continued their campaign by attacking another fort, uh, which ultimately led Taylor uh, to call for backup. Ultimately, the battle would be decided in the Americans' favors, um, and then following the end of those two battles, uh, Congress would quickly declare war. Uh, 
and they were off. Now, if you remember from the Bear Flag Revolt episode, we talked about the arrival of the Navy in Alta California. Originally, uh, John D. Sloat, um, a Commodore, was instructed by the U.S. government to land in Alta California in preparation for the eventual conflict with Mexico in an effort to kind of be prepared to claim Alta California for the United States. Uh, Sloat had a brief skirmish in Monterey with the Mexican military forces there. And here's what Sloat wrote to his squadron as they landed in Alta California. Quote, We are now about to land in the territory of Mexico, with whom the United States is at war. To strike their flag and hoist our own in place of it is our duty. It is not only our duty to take California, but to preserve it afterwards as part of the United States at all hazards. To accomplish this, it is of first importance to cultivate the good opinions of the inhabitants whom we must reconcile. I scarcely consider it necessary for me to caution American seamen and Marines against the detestable crimes of plundering and maltreating unoffending inhabitants. But no one may misunderstand his duty. The following regulations must be strictly adhered to as no violation can hope to escape the severest punishment. End quote. So Sloat and his soldiers landed on Mexican soil and marched to the Custom House in Monterey, where they rather peacefully hoisted an American flag and read the proclamation stating that they had the right to occupy this land. There's actually an interesting anecdote uh, about the British Navy, um, and the Mexican government, in fact, owed uh, the British government a sizable debt. Um, and the British were actually prepared to occupy Monterey as well. And Sloat barely scooted in two weeks before uh, the British Navy was set to arrive in Monterey. Um, the admiral uh, of the British Navy, Admiral Seymour, uh, arrived just a bit too late. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think about, hypothetically, um, what would have happened if the British had occupied Monterey first. But, you know... Didn't happen, so, uh, but it's interesting to think about. In any case, uh, Sloat was the military governor of California for 22 days. Uh, most of that time was spent relatively peacefully. Uh, the population of Monterey had been occupied before. This was nothing new to them. Sloat started creating fortifications and securing Monterey. And then on July 23rd, uh, Sloat was relieved uh, by Robert F. Stockton, who uh, the city of Stockton is named after. Stockton is a blue blood and comes from an important family. His father was a U.S. senator and representative, and his grandfather was, in fact, the attorney general of the state of New Jersey. Stockton uh, spent part of his youth as a midshipman uh, and served during the War of 1812. He continued to serve in the Navy and was, in fact, the naval officer to act, uh, the first naval officer to act against the slave trade in the Atlantic. He also negotiated with uh, Dr. Eli Ayers uh, with six tribal chiefs for the creation of the country of Liberia. The complex history of that treaty negotiated in address is worth exploring, but not here. It's just interesting to see how this one man has been involved in so many interesting features of U.S. history. Interspersed throughout his military service, he dabbled in business ventures, including real estate and land development. But probably the most interesting thing about Robert F. Stockton uh, was his involvement in a catastrophic incident in 1844 involving the USS Pr 
Princeton. Stockton took part in designing weapons for ships and designed a gun called the Peacemaker, which, while impressive visually, was actually less powerful because of its size. Additionally, the construction and the testing of the gun was rushed, only being fired five times before it was put into use. In fact, the design of the gun had the typical problems of a wrought iron gun that it was eventually going to burst under pressure. Nonetheless, President Tyler hosted a reception at the White House for Stockton, um, and then the day after, they did a victory lap on the ship that held the Peacemaker. Stockton fired the Peacemaker multiple times to impress his guests, which included the President, the former First Lady Dolly Madison, Cabinet Secretaries, and many other dignities and crew as well. Toward the end of the tour, the Secretary of Navy, a man named Thomas Gilmer, urged Stockton to fire the gun just one last time. Um, and this just happened, unfortunately, to be the time that it finally gave. Uh, the gun exploded and sprayed metal shrapnel across the deck, killing Gilmer, who had urged him to fire it, and, and as well as other secretaries and a few other uh, important people, including the president's uh, valet, an African-American uh, man named Armistead. Uh, Stockton, interestingly, was not ultimately held accountable or liable for this disaster um, and continued his career in the Navy uh, untarnished, interestingly. Now, Sloat had not pursued further action in California uh, after taking Monterey, but Stockton was not content to stay in Monterey. Uh, he was given a mission to take all to California for the United States um, and ultimately decided to attack the Pueblo of Los Angeles in Southern California uh, with the help of those bear flag revolutionaries uh, who we met in previous episodes. Now, I've mentioned before in previous episodes that there was a kind of rivalry between the northern part of Alta California and the southern part between Monterey and Los Angeles, both vying to be the seat of power in Alta California. During the Mexican period, Los Angeles, in fact, became the kind of de facto center of power. Los Angeles was where Pio Pico was holding out uh, during this initial invasion, and with him, the uh, general of Mexican forces in Alta California, Jose Castro, who was in fact, the brother-in-law of the former governor of Alta California, Juan Batista Alvarado. And you can see all these people are very interconnected because it's just truly a small town. Now, Castro had been a longtime supporter of California independence from Mexico and helped, in fact, in various insurrections as well, including the one that put Pio Pico into power. Now, given Castro's proclivities to seek independence as a path forward uh, and the numbers game with the U.S. troops, Castro ultimately decided to flee with Pico to Sonora. Stockton arrived in Los Angeles to virtually no resistance. Uh, you should be seeing a pattern here at this point. Uh, the invasion force was led by a man named Captain Archibald Gillespie. Or Gillespie. Uh, Archie then became the effective governor of the city of Los Angeles, which was at this point only about uh, 3,000 uh, Californios. Archie decided that the best way to move uh, forward was with a garrison of 50 soldiers to support him um, and to institute martial law. Instituting martial law is common during occupations uh, or when there are threats of insurrections, but in this case it was clearly an overreach which led the Californios to ultimately revolt, so it was a serious mistake, which leads us now finally to the Siege of Los Angeles. 
Stockton left in September, and the Californios grew quickly fed up with rule under Archie and engaged in a series of battles uh, in Los Angeles. The first thing that happened was on September 22nd, shots were fired between Californios and American soldiers. Uh, the following day, uh, rebellion was officially announced by a few important Californios. And then the day after that, a group of soldiers uh, organized under Jose Marie Flores. Flores had worked in government in Alta California, serving as a secretary to the former governor of Alta California, as well as the secretary to Jose Castro, who had recently uh, fled to Sonora. Uh, when Castro fled, uh, Flores became the most senior military officer and therefore in charge. The siege began with those initial shots, uh, which were fired at a government building. Uh, so Archie and his forces uh, retreated to Fort Hill. Uh, Fort Hill, which would later be renamed, has an interesting history in itself. Uh, when the American forces would eventually retake the city, the fort would become an integral part of the city's defense. After some updates, the fort would be renamed Fort Moore Hill, and the construction was in fact completed by one of the only religious units in the army, the Mormon Battalion, uh, with the support of another unit. The fort would later be decommissioned by a military officer whose name might be familiar to you, William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, the fort would then go through a series of transitions throughout the history of Los Angeles. Fort Moore Hill would become home to one of the, uh, the first breweries in Los Angeles, the New York Brewery. Uh, that venture didn't last long, and the land was sold to Mary Banning, uh, whose father was the founder of the Port of Los Angeles. Later, it would become a cemetery, a school, and eventually the headquarters of LAUSD. Once the American soldiers had gotten to Fort Hill, uh, they reinforced it, uh, created some fortifications around it to protect themselves, but they were greatly outnumbered by the angry citizens of Los Angeles, who didn't care for the way that Gillespie had run the city under military rule. Consequently, it was only a matter of time before they would have to surrender. Flores, um, being merciful, gave the troops an ultimatum, leave town or die. Old West style showdown. Gillespie read the writing on the wall and left. Now, eventually the Americans would turn in force, but for now the people of Los Angeles had repelled the invaders, and Flores would continue uh, his campaign uh, to remove them from Alta California by continuing north. Um, now, another battle that took place during the same time, um, and I consider part of the Siege of Los Angeles, was the Battle of Chino. Uh, this battle, as has been called, is hardly a battle. Uh, it's more of a skirmish or quick engagement. Basically, a group of Americans were at a ranch in Chino, down the road in San Bernardino, a squad of Californios gathered and surrounded the Americans at this ranch in Chino. Uh, they exchanged gunfire uh, for maybe an hour, um, and a few Americans were injured and one Californio was killed. Californios then took the Americans into custody as prisoners and marched them to Boyle Heights, where they had planned to execute them, uh, but ultimately decided against it. They were eventually released as prisoners after marching them from Boyle Heights to the present-day Long Beach area. And this is the beginning of the conflict in Alta California. You can see it's uh, hardly a series of epic battles of the Civil War variety, uh, but rather a series of skirmishes between militia, citizens, soldiers. Um, it's, a, it's a war that uh, is disjointed, uh, but ultimately speaks 
to how interconnected uh, Mexican history, Spanish history, and American history are in the history of Alta California. In our next episode, we'll talk about the Californios campaign pushing north and then the American response. As you'll see, the battles in this theater of war were small in comparison to the Eastern theater of war. But what you will see is that this conflict would put California on a particular path as the war ends. And Alta California is split apart, uh, and California is absorbed into the United States. It's good for Californians to remember that at one point, Los Angeles was a Mexican city. Using that lens should dramatically change how you view where you live, who belongs, and who doesn't, and why. Now, to be clear, I don't have answers to those questions. But what I do know is that they should be asked more often. Until next time. Thank you.